Hello, and welcome to Queer as Fiction, where we discuss queer historical media. I'm Jace. I'm Alice. And today we're discussing the history of queer representation in tabletop role-playing games. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Bunawong Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast and pay respect to their elders past and present. We recognise them as the custodians of an oral history tradition far older than this podcast. We also have some content warnings for this episode. They include mentions of sexual acts, sex work, sexual fetishes, homophobia and transphobia, including fictional instances of both homophobic and pro-gay violence, and discussion of HIV AIDS. If any of that sounds like something you don't want to listen to, please feel free to check out one of our other episodes. So let us begin by setting the scene. The room is illuminated. (laughs) (laughs) As soon as you said that, I was like, you're just gonna be like, you walk into a tavern. Yes, yes you are. The room is illuminated by light of a provocative scarlet hue. The air is musky, smoky, honey sweet. (laughs) I didn't sign up for a sexy roleplay session. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm in it now. (laughs) A luxurious carpet of thick black fur covers the floor, and in the centre of it is a pedestal which has a golden bowl affixed to it. The four walls are adorned with lurid reliefs of men, (laughs) women, and other creatures locked in all manner of sensuous embrace. An unseen voice speaks as the party of adventurers enters. Seek ye fulfilment, it asks. <laughs> Wouldst thou like to live deliciously? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would have been better. Um, <laughs> Sorry, you just cut that in. <laughs> no, 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 that's okay. I, I, in fact, did not write this. Uh, this is how Larry Dottilio, writing in Dragon Magazine issue number 36 in 1980, describes an encounter he had originally intended for his home game of Dungeons & Dragons, but which ended up being presented at a convention. Uh, so anyway, today we're talking about tabletop role-playing games and depictions of queerness throughout their history. Uh, modern TTRPGs, typified by Dungeons & Dragons, evolved out of a mix of 60s historical reenactment groups beginning to incorporate modern elements, and fantasy war games based on swords and sorcery novels that began to shift towards controlling a single character rather than an entire army, a concept that required stealing the concept of hit points from games depicting fights between ironclad ships in the US Civil War. I am so fascinated by this. I know you've actually told me about the origin of hit points before, and I just never thought it would come from, like, battleship games. Yeah, it was just there were a lot of historical reenactment games, and it was all, like, based on army v. army conflicts, and, you know, you don't need multiple hit points for representing one soldier in that context. Yeah, it's just like you hit a soldier and your soldier dies. Okay, that's the numbers that are down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The concept of a fantasy world and the ability to put on a character not entirely your own has always been fertile ground for queer gender and sexuality exploration. See the entire history of theatre. See everything, yep. (laughs) And TTRPGs these days are no different. But things were a bit awkward back in the day, which brings us back to Dottilio and his lurid reliefs. (laughs) It's just a regular ancient Roman house. (laughs) This room is one of 13 which constitute the first level of a dungeon adventure I call the Inn of Utah. The purpose of it should be clear to even a hobbit-sized imagination. Once a party enters, the unseen voice offers them a choice of delicacies, and if the heroes and heroines care to view these, then shimmering, coloured force portals open in the walls. Behind these portals, exotic women and men, brackets, the ERA already passed in my world, beckon seductively. What does that mean? Uh, So the ERA is the Equal Rights Amendment, um, (laughs) and this is basically just referring to homosexuality. Okay. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So he's just being like, you can choose whatever. Yeah. It's fine in this world. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Nice room to put that in. 
Yeah, I think yeah, I think it's both a reference to queerness and also a reference to like feminism. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, makes sense. Uh, Dottilio then goes on to describe the alarmed reaction of the teen convention players he had picked up at his table beyond his regular group. Yeah, maybe you shouldn't have run this for teens in public, mate. <laughs> with a particular player playing a paladin, asking him if partaking of the sex on offer would be against his alignment. Oh, I mean, look. D&D alignment has always been a murky philosophical territory. A dangerous question to ask. Yeah, well, that's exactly what we're going to get into. Uh, says Dottilio, I suddenly realised that here I was, 31 years old, the product of a, shall we say, liberated New York City youth, and this 14-year-old was asking me if an act of sex was evil. He goes on <laughs> to describe his response. You should never have put yourself in that situation. <laughs> well, he disagrees. Uh, the answer I finally gave wasn't profound, but it was honest. I told him if he considered sex evil, it was, though in my opinion, it wasn't. Okay, that was a pretty solid answer. After an extensive discussion, he offers a more constructive opinion later in the article. These young players will, in real life, face sexual encounters, drug use, racial prejudice, religious crisis, political corruption, and numerous meetings with other human beings who may very well be of evil alignment. At the moment of such confrontations, all their experiences will carry weight, fantasy experiences as well as real. The more open-minded a DM is in providing such real-life simulations in a dungeon, the more his players will pick up reasonable attitudes towards the very real evils of life. Role-playing is meant to do this, and D&D is a legitimate arena for espousing the good. I don't mean you should forgo the thrill of fang, talon, claw, and sword. I only suggest that you balance it with good role-play of a significant nature. One good-aligned helpful character who happens to be gay can change a passel of bigoted attitudes that have no basis. That's fair. That's reasonable. I mean, I think, yeah, the same can be said of any fiction, right? Like, fiction is for entertainment and escapism, but it's also for learning about the world. Yeah, and especially learning about things beyond your experience, especially when you're young. Yeah, and, like, getting empathy for things that you will never actually have to deal with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Now... That's great, and it's really cool to see that in 1980. Yeah. This attitude was by no means universal. I'm shocked. (laughs) Um, In Dragon Magazine 39, a terribly meandering response piece by (laughs) Douglas P. Backman offers the following. If someone uses a fantasy game or novel as a soapbox or a pulpit, that person has perverted a fantasy and has turned a form of art into a form of propaganda or pornography. I'm sorry, but like the OG fantasy writer, Tolkien, is the most soapboxy guy imaginable. <laughs> like the genre has always been a soapbox. I also find it fascinating that he uses the term, like he's turned it from a form of art into a form of propaganda or pornography. Like... I feel like that's such a terrible argument because if you're going to argue that like, oh, politics has no place in D&D, I don't think you argue that D&D is therefore art. I think you argue that D&D is like a game and, you know, should just be fun, lighthearted entertainment. Yeah. You argue that something is art. It obviously has political relevance. Yeah, I agree. Like you could be like, no, I just want this. And I think it would be understandable for any individual person in their individual D&D games. Be like, no, I just want this to be escapism. I don't want us to deal with racial prejudice or homophobia or whatever Mm. it might be. That would be very reasonable for an individual. But like... I just want it to be art. I don't want it to have politics. It's like, we have a deeper conversation about the purpose of art and society to have here. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I do find Dottilio's attitude refreshingly modern for 1980, understanding the importance Mm. of representation. Uh, He also speaks of depictions of race in the piece that he wrote, Mm. um, in shaping people's understanding of minority groups and encouraging those groups to join a hobby. Uh, Dottilio specifically calls out the whiteness of the average convention crowd. Yep, yep, good on him. I think something you pointed out just now is like the obvious kind of 
caveat to that, which is like, particularly if you are a player who is from a minority, you might not want to address those things in your game. Yeah. Especially if you are still, you know, if you have a table of queer people, they might want to play out some queer stuff in their game. But if you have one gay person at a table of straight people, like that's a very uncomfortable situation to start role playing about homophobia. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. There's, I want to say there's a Matt Colville video where he literally talks about this, where I can't remember if it was a story from his own DMing or from a friend of his DMing, where he had a player from a minority group. I'm actually like not sure the exact details here, but mm-hmm. basically he was like, oh, let me offer you up this opportunity to engage in roleplay that engages with like real world prejudices. Yeah. And the player was like, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> it's like, I have to do that every day in real life. I don't want to do that in my fun little game where i'm a dwarf with a giant axe killing orcs or yeah i just want to be one of the gang yeah um yeah i don't think it was his game i think it was someone else but mm-hmm. like the the story still stands yeah uh now obviously that example is kind of specific to particular dms and is kind of a matter of dungeon master philosophy but that wasn't the only way in which queerness was manifesting in D early on in the midst of 70s discussions on how to roleplay your character stat line and the development of the alignment system any aspect of your characterization was subject to being, as John Peterson puts it in his TTRPG history book, The Elusive Shift, diced and quantified. <laughs> <laughs> Role for sexuality? That is exactly where we're going. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Writes Peterson, Greg Kostikian had already invented a sex in Dungeons and Dragons system by 1975. An initial affiliation role would assign characters to the categories of heterosexual, bisexual, homosexual, transsexual, or extraordinary. Extraordinary? (laughs) Does he expand on the meaning of extraordinary? Where the latter encompasses a variety of fetishes. Okay. I always find this so fascinating, and this is like beyond this specific example, where people make like transsexual, and in this case, fetishes separate categories like there's no overlap like it's like trans people aren't also interested in certain genders if you have a fetish you may not also have very gender expression it's just like you've got one thing (laughs) that's it yeah and um you know knowing queer people that's just the least accurate thing imaginable (laughs) yeah that's not real but anyway a fixation table gives new characters a 65 percent chance of being quote-unquote normal uh, and a 2% chance of being obsessed with armpits. Wait, wait, wait. So you first you roll whether you're gay, straight, bi, trans... Or extraordinary. Or extraordinary. <laughs> and then everyone, extraordinary or otherwise, also rolls on this fixation table to find out if and what fetishes you have. Yeah, I haven't been able to track down this exact table. <laughs> okay. So I'm unclear on the exact way the mechanics work. I'm just going by how it's described okay. uh, in, uh, in Peterson's work. Three six-sided dice determine a character's sex drive, which must periodically be satisfied to avoid desperate acts. <laughs> so is is he suggesting that you just go into your normal D&D campaign, but you just like overlay this additional sex mechanic into your campaign? Is that yeah. what's this for? Okay. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening here. Yeah, yeah. Kostikian noted the implications of this determination for alignment in that any sadist or sadomasochist with a sex drive of above 16 must be chaotic. And that paladins may not have a sex drive higher than 14. (laughs) Okay, I think we need to stop and explain both alignment and what a paladin is before we proceed. (laughs) Okay, so yeah, we've made a couple of references to paladins. If you haven't played any D&D, the kind of, specifically within the context of D&D, a paladin is a religious fighter figure who takes an oath, particularly in older versions of D&D, not so much in 5th edition. 
that oath was taken very seriously by players and dungeon masters uh and there were often serious consequences for your character for breaking your oath um including the loss of all of your powers makes Um, sense if you got your magic powers to an oath if you break your oath you lose your powers yeah yeah and you know like originally paladins could only be lawful good um as their alignment so to get in a little bit into alignment Alignment is some nonsense, but uh, it comes from, um, actually predates D&D, at least the chaotic and lawful part of it does, which I believe comes from, I want to say it's Michael Moorcox, uh, something Champions series. Okay. Um, when you <laughs> say series, are we talking just like a book series? Uh, yeah, we're talking a fantasy book series, like okay. very like pulp sword and sorcery type fiction, Yeah, cool. which featured kind of law and chaos as forces that acted upon the universe okay, yeah. and that kind of any character falls on one side of that and generally in early dnd it was considered that the players fo- fell on the lawful side of things and mm. the monsters fell on the chaotic side okay of things. that makes sense you're lawful you're fighting chaos that's a pretty standard way to conceptualize the world just in the, in society yeah everywhere <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly they then layered good and evil on top of this uh mm. in you know a fairly unsubtle pretty uh heavily christianized kind of way and so you end up with a you know an alignment chart which you've probably seen before in your life even if you have very little knowledge of dnd you know with a nine a three by three grid uh going from lawful good in the top left to chaotic evil in the bottom right yeah yeah Okay, so now we've done that. Go back and tell me what the limitations were on your alignment and your sex drive. <laughs> so um, any sadist or sadomasochist, but not masochists, with a sex drive of above 16 must be chaotic. Okay, so you must be chaotic if you want to inflict pain. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah. Hmm. Does this person exactly know the definitions of like sadist, sadomasochist and masochist? I think they think sadomasochist just means masochist. They might, is what they I might think, think is happening there. Yeah. But anyway, anyway. Um, and yeah, anyone with any sadist or sadomasochist with a sex drive of above 16 must be chaotic. And okay. paladins may not have a sex drive higher than 14. So if you're like a religious knight under oath, you also have to be pretty asexual. I mean, that's not that asexual. So What's no, the range of uh, sex drive here? Yeah, so that's what I was about to say, is that obviously I noted before that you roll 3d6 to determine this. So this is this the same as a normal stat line where it goes from 3 to 18. Okay, so 18... So 14 is actually pretty high. Yeah. You just can't be like the horniest holy knight. You can just be like a kind of horny holy knight. Yeah. Confusing. <laughs> I feel like it would make sense if they were just like, yeah, the Holy Knight has to be asexual. Like, there's a lot of precedent for that in the world, especially regarding, like, Christian history and, like, the association of holiness and asexuality or chastity. But I'm just confused by the number they've chosen. Yeah, the numbers are pretty arbitrary. And this is a common thing with, you know, um, these kinds of tables <laughs> is there's always like, oh, well, you need to have at least a 13 in this and you can't have more than a 17 in this and, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. Somebody's just pulling random numbers out of a hat. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, so Scott Rosenberg, who played in Kostikian's game, observed... Now, I literally, as someone who's been playing D- D&D for a decade, mm-hmm. do not know what some of this means. Okay, <laughs> we'll give it a go. <laughs> um, specifically this first part. Once I was a clerical phase spider. I don't know what a phase spider is in this context. I guess it's a spider that's like disappearing and reappearing in different locations. Yeah, but is that your character? I guess... Why is your character a spider? I guess you want your character to be a spider. That's fine. That's yeah, cool. okay. Um, anyway, once I was a clerical phase spider, homosexual with an oral fixation, masochistic, the sex characteristics are determined randomly, not by choice, and soon dead. 
Okay, that's very funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I think we need more information. Was he dead because of any of these sexual traits, or was he just dead? I suspect that they had something to do with it, particularly the masochism. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that could easily lead to your character dying. Yeah. So these approaches, which were obviously varying in maturity, but nonetheless making an honest effort to reflect the full gamut of human sexuality... Mm, that's true. ...would fall a little flat once we hit the 1980s. Mm -hmm. Three notable factors contributed to increased scrutiny on the content of TTRPGs. Uh, so firstly, a massive influx of younger players beginning in the uh, late 70s. Um, secondly, the release of the novel and then movie Mazes and Monsters in 1981 and 1982 respectively that were based on the real-life case of a 16-year-old D&D player whose suicide attempts were reported at the time to be linked to his playing of TTRPGs. Oh, I didn't, like, I kind of knew there was this whole thing where people linked, um, TTRPGs to, like, suicide and then we get, like, satanic panic and all that stuff later on, but I didn't know there was a book and movie that kind of brought that into the public eye. Yeah, yeah. And it seems like that reporting was certainly sensationalized. I, you know, haven't done a deep dive into the case to be like, well, yep. exactly how much did this play a role? But yeah, certainly yeah. sensationalized. And of course, as you mentioned already, in the US at least, it was the era of Reagan and a series of moral panics, including the satanic panic, which targeted, among many other things, D&D uh, &D and other TTRPGs. Hmm. So prior to all this, these examples you've given of like how you played sex in RPGs, was that like in TTRPGs, was that like a minority group or was that like a kind of norm in the community that a lot of people were exploring? It's like how mainstream was this kind of stuff? Oh, uh, I wouldn't say like, and you know, it's obviously very hard to gather that kind of data, Yeah, but I wouldn't say it would have been standard across mm. like lots of tables, but it, it certainly seems like, and this is not just in the case of like talking about queerness and sexuality and things like that, but also just kind of generally other themes. My understanding from uh, the older people I've seen who speak, who, you know, have lived through that time yeah. is that the game was originally a bit more mature and the crowd that were playing it were a bit older. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think it was reasonably common to encounter these kinds of questions. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it might just be as simple as, like, characters getting married oh, um, yeah. being yeah. something that was a reasonable thing that was considered a normal part of the game world, particularly, uh, you know, a particular kind of old style of play involved characters kind of reaching a certain level and then retiring and sort of becoming noble lords. And so we're a lot mm -hmm. of like political marriages being played out. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense then. So yeah, I think there were, there was definitely an era where there were slightly more adult themes that then mm -hmm. kind of was moved away from a bit as a lot of the marketing for D&D became more kid focused. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. All of this controversy led to companies like TSR, the original publishers of D&D, to do things like create a code of ethics in 1984, which read... Rape and graphic lust should never be portrayed or discussed. Sexual activity is not to be portrayed. Sexual perversion and sexual abnormalities are unacceptable. <laughs> abnormalities are unacceptable. <laughs> so regardless of whether or not this was explicitly intended to, as a sort of ban on depictions of queerness and homosexuality, mm. this had an obvious dampening effect on that presentation in mainstream RPGs. Uh, and where there was queerness depicted, it was often severely limited in its scope or outright villainous in order to fit in with kind of other media standards at the mm, time. Mm. So is this code of ethics published as a thing like for the 
players and DMs running this game, or was this more like a company code of ethics? Uh, no, so this would have been for writers um, and oh, people making right, D&D right. content. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Although it pro- probably would have also been distributed to like Dungeon Masters as well, particularly if you were DMing a convention, you probably oh, yeah. had something like this told to you. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, I think the inclusion of the phrase sexual perversion makes it pretty clearly anti-queer, I would say. Yeah. Uh, examples of where there was queerness, but it was, like, severely limited in scope uh, include, and this is where we'll start to sort of talk about some non-D&D tabletop RPGs. So first there's GURPS. Uh, <laughs> I knew you were going to laugh at that. Oh, it's a funny word. I'm sorry, yeah. but it is. <laughs> uh, well, it's not a word. In fact, it's an acronym. Uh, okay. It stands for Generic Universal Role-Playing System. Okay. <laughs> yes, it's funny. Um, published a licensed game based on the Wild Cards novels, GURPS Super's Wild Cards, 1988. There you could find a closeted gay homophobe, an anti-hero imported from the novels called Mac the Knife. Isn't that like a song? Pretty sure that's a song. I would not be surprised. I was not aware that it was a song, but I would not be surprised at all because uh, often what you will find in particularly older tabletop RPG content is it's all references. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That um, makes sense then. Because particularly early on, there wasn't a lot of thought in that in the field of writing tabletop RPG content for copyright. Like there oh, was, yeah. They were like, well, we're running game books for like our friends in our local area and kind of distributing them very haphazardly. Yeah. No one cares about this. Um, similarly, in the superhero supplement for IST International Super Teams, 1991, uh, there's a closeted gay man from the Soviet Union, um, depicted in the game. Uh, a gay hero living with AIDS was cut from the manuscript, but published online several years later. Oh, okay. So, like, you originally started with this Mac the Knife, like, closeted homophobe character, and I was like, yeah, well, that's just a bad character. We don't need that stereotype in our lives. That's, you know, whatever. But, like, you know, a gay hero living with AIDS, good. Good representation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, it's a pity they were caught, but, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, like, there is a hero that is in the game. Like, these are actually two different characters. So mm-hmm. it was a closeted gay man from the Soviet Union. Yeah. And then you've got this gay hero living with AIDS. Yeah, yeah. The article I pulled several of these examples from describes how perhaps the most positive mention of queerness is to be found in Bunnies and Burrows, 1992, inspired by Richard Adams' novel Watership Down. <laughs> <laughs> that is not what I expected you to say. <laughs> um, which contains a passage that describes how a male bunny in heat will hump anything, including inanimate objects and other male bunnies, which is a pretty dire state of affairs when that's considered to be about as positive as it gets. Yeah, that's not like, oh, yeah, getting some good representation. I can really connect with this bunny. Like, that's that's not queer representation. No. That's just a fact about nature. Yep. So wait, so just back up a little bit. There was the, a watership down... TTRPG. Yep. (laughs) And how did the male bunny and heat factor into this? Was this like a thing that could occur within this? I truly couldn't (laughs) tell you. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Uh... Um... Yeah. I just how many people are reading Watership Down? I'm sorry to go off on the stand and being like, <laughs> yeah, I really want to like act this out with my friends. Like it's a really depressing book about rabbits. There have been a lot of adaptational tabletop RPGs over the years that shouldn't have existed uh certainly some of them shouldn't have existed (laughs) (laughs) on the other hand we have a a lot of more villainous examples um these include uh the presentation of slanesh in warhammer fantasy and 40k which were at the time much more role-playing heavy games than the sort of uh strategic war games form that they exist in today mm-hmm. uh slanesh being the god slash goddess of ecstasy excess and lust whose gender presentation is intentionally fluid often comically so with oversized breasts on one side and a flat chest on the other 
Okay, okay. Um, and who represents one of the four chaos gods who, no matter how cool I personally find them, <laughs> uh, do wish to devour the souls of all mortal beings and subject them to eternal torment. So you're like, gender fluid character represents lost and wanting to destroy the world. Yeah. Once again, that's not what I would call good representation. No, they were first published as such in 1988, described as a bisexual humanoid, male on the left side and female on the right, which immediately betrays a misunderstanding <laughs> of several terms. Um, with art depicting the leather, chains, and mohawks common to BDSM scenes then and indeed now. Yeah. <laughs> I can definitely see, I would call this bad representation, but I can definitely also see a queer person now, but especially more then when there were less options for representation, really latching onto this. Oh, queer people even now still super latch onto yeah. this. Like, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Some of these minis are hilarious and, you know... <laughs> If you're not averse to some monstrous demonic boobs, uh, <laughs> I would recommend looking up some Warhammer Slanesh minis because they're just funny. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, sometimes very objectifying and they have kind of moved away a little bit from that as time has gone on. So does this character still exist in modern Warhammer? Yeah. It's still in this form? Uh, yeah, they've softened a bit of the descriptions over time, not so much in terms of whether or not they want to uh, eat mortal souls. They absolutely do. Okay, um, I mean, you can't make a chaos god not want to eat mortal souls, right? Yeah, but more so, instead of focusing so much on lust, mm. focusing on excess generally, and oh, okay. like excess of the senses um, okay. is like a big thing. There's kind of a whole thing. There's a whole, to really go deep in the weeds of Warhammer lore, <laughs> there's a whole faction in Warhammer 40k that are based around like excess of noise. And so oh. they wield like sonic based weaponry that's all, they look like heavy metal guitarists basically. <laughs> that's a cool concept. Yeah, which is a cool concept and, and sort of allows them to focus on slanesh and excess mm. without being explicitly sexual. Yeah. Which is quite interesting, but yeah. not the subject of this podcast. <laughs> So particularly notable uh, are the works of publisher Task Force Games, who in 1988 released a game called Central Casting, Heroes of Legend. In its sourcebook, being transsexual, asexual, gay, bisexual, fetishistic, voyeuristic, or necrophiliac are all listed as sexual disorders and examples of terrifying dark sides of personality. Cool, cool, groovy, groovy, yeah. love that. The same publisher mentions homosexuality in its later works as well. In Heroes Now, 1991, they have a designer position statement that expresses a wish that these kinds of abominations, such as being gay, should not be brought into the game at all. If they for some reason had to be included, these dark features should be played in such a way that they would be awful burdens and obstacles <laughs> which the player characters would try to get rid of. Uh, now, Task Force games are obviously an extreme example, being an yes. explicitly conservative publisher who declared in the same statement that any sexual relationship other than between a husband and wife is wrong. <laughs> Okay, like I understand intellectually that homophobes exist and this is the kind of stuff they think about, but just sitting down and being like, right, we want to just like play heroes in a fantasy world and we can have magic powers and we can fly and we can do whatever we want, but we can only have heterosexual sex within marriage. Like, it's like, first off, why do you care if somebody's playing a gay character that doesn't affect you? But obviously that's just how homophobes are. And secondly, it's just like kind of baffling that they're so narrow-minded there's no desire to experiment in a safe environment yeah <laughs> confusing <laughs> so yeah obviously that's like one extreme uh but there was a clear trend here in line with the highly limited queer representation in other forms of media during the 80s in the u.s things began to change in the late 80s and early 90s but not so much in traditional fantasy ttrpgs 
Mm-hmm. Two communities in particular began to explore queerness in their games with a bit more frequency and openness as we head into the 1990s. The first being cyberpunk games set in a dystopian future, and the second being games set in modern times with fantastical elements, most notably the incredibly influential Vampire the Masquerade, first published in 1991. I mean, we know that vampires are queer. Like, if you go to play a vampire game but you want it to be intensely heterosexual, then, like, what are you doing? Like, I know that the Twilight novels exist, but, you know. But they're the exception, not the rule. They're the exception to the rule of vampire fiction. <laughs> Okay, we're about to get some years here, and you're going to get confused. Okay, I'll but that's work fine. hard. Um, in Cyberpunk 2020, published in 1990. Okay, I love it when games are trying to act out the future, but we're now in that future. <laughs> yes. Or, and movies or books or anything. Um, a random table existed during character creation, where you could end up creating a same-sex ex-lover for your character. Okay, seems good and fine. Yeah. Um, slightly earlier than that, Cyberpunk 2013's 1989 rock and roll supplement, <laughs> Rocker Boy. <laughs> I really want to see these games. Uh, prominently featured NPC Maz Despair, a lesbian political satirist on the run after being framed for the murder of the governor of Texas. Maz Despair sounds incredible. Yeah, right? <laughs> Is there a novelization of Maz Despair's, like, story? Uh, clearly I need to run some cyberpunk for you guys. Yeah, I want to run, play a cyberpunk game that's set now, but was in the 80s, and see how they thought it would be. <laughs> we, could, we could do this. Yeah. 1991 supplement, Tales from the Forlorn Hope, features Marianne Freeman, co-owner of the titular bar, The Forlorn Hope, uh, and trans woman, whose husband is quoted as saying, she was a woman when I met her, and that's how I always thought of her. Okay. Um, so, you know, those are some pretty positive examples of queer representation. Yeah. And, you know, particularly the stuff where it's like, this is a table during character creation, so this is pretty, like, core to the game. Obviously, the other yeah. stuff is coming from, like, supplements, um, where you mm. do expect things to kind of expand out a bit in terms of the content they cover. Yeah. But, yeah, I thought those were some pretty cool examples. So these ones where, you, like, you have to roll on a table and you may get uh, same-sex X, mm-hmm. is that, like, a part... Does everyone do that in character creation? Is that like a, here's an option, you can roll on this table? I didn't read the exact rules, but I think okay. what it would probably be is um, similar to the D&D uh, character creation, where it gives you options for character traits. You've actually recently been through this process. Yeah, it takes 12 years. <laughs> Not what all these D&D people are doing when they play one-shots and make new characters every time. <laughs> In the rules of the game, it presents, hey, you know, once you've done the mechanical stuff, go through and, you know, generate some background for your character. Mm. And, like, D&D says this, where it's like, hey, here's how to generate your, like, you know, personality traits and your flaws and your bonds. Now, you know, obviously a lot of players don't do that. Yeah, because I guess if you already have an idea in your head of who your character is, you're just going to make up your own background rather than being like, I'll roll a dice and see what I get. Yeah. 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 Um, so, you know, it wasn't every player that was necessarily rolling on these tables but you know this does sound like reasonably core in terms of the experience Mm -hmm. so a different dystopian game cyberspace released a supplement in 1990 called sprawl gangs and megacorps which featured a gang called the models comprised exclusively of beautiful gay men the representation here is not great Mm -hmm. uh, as the gang is said to often target women scarring their faces in order to shout now we are prettier than you Oh, okay. This is a real mixed bag. It also notes their principled opposition to sex work, um, like for themselves, especially, okay. uh, and their antagonism with the wasps and new Hitler youth. Okay, I mean, like, we can all get behind antagonism to the Hitler youth of any age. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that was really a mixed bag. You're right. Yeah. In less futurist settings, 1992 Cold War era spy game Over the Edge featured 
you are gay and feel the need to keep this a secret as an example of a character secret. Okay. Um, admittedly, alongside things like you are a cannibal and you worked for the CIA. <laughs> Look, this kind of makes sense in the Cold War, like lavender scarce kind of setting where there was all that fear around queerness and blackmail and like outing. Yeah. Yeah. Like that, that fits in that setting. Obviously being gay and being a cannibal are two very different things, but setting wise, socially, it makes sense. Yeah. I was kind of, when you started this, I was thinking, okay, so we've established that cyberpunk is queerer than high fantasy. And that kind of just, I'm trying to express why, but that just makes sense to me. I think of high fantasy as a much more conservative genre and cyberpunk being kind of much more exploratory. Yeah. Yeah. And then you were like Cold War spy. And I was like, well, that's not really a, you know, exploratory trying out new things. We could get some interesting queer stuff genre, but it makes sense if we're talking about like the blackmail of gay people. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. But now, as, you, as you've kind of already mentioned, vampires are really gay. So let's get to the yeah. really juicy one, which is Vampire the Masquerade. Uh, so VTM's first edition was published by White Wolf Publishing in 1991, based on 80s RPGs like Call of Cthulhu and RuneQuest, as well as movies, including one of this household's favorite <laughs> vampire flicks, The Lost Boys. <laughs> that is a good movie. Uh, I will also note entirely for Alice's benefit uh, that Mark Ryan Hagen, the game's lead creator, said in a Reddit ama that he purposely didn't read anne rice till nearly the end of the process but i'm pretty sure she was the secret source in all those vampire movies i was watching (laughs) yeah i feel like i feel like i don't want to be influenced by anne rice so i won't read anne rice like if you're in vampire fiction it's too late i i feel like this is and this is a reference that literally only you and i will get um among maybe some of our audience will um but the thing where john darniel hasn't listed bob listened to bob dylan (laughs) yeah like i'm sorry the mountain goats and bob dylan it's the same thing (laughs) it's the same band you can't escape it and similarly (laughs) vampire the masquerade could not escape Anne rice yeah VTM was, if not the first, then by far the most prominent early attempt for TTRPGs to escape the core demographics that utterly define them in popular culture, until I would argue even very recently. As Paul Mason puts it, Vampire and its successes took role-playing out of its core constituency, which could perhaps be pithily, if unkindly, described as Lord of the Rings reading social inadequates, (laughs) and established an alternative thief, in this case, that of undead-obsessed goths. Okay, yep, yep, yep. So we've moved from nerds to goths. Yeah. So just talking a bit about the demographics of the people who play TPTRPGs, obviously from what we've kind of implied in the 80s and what we've even explicitly said actually it was a pretty like white hobby like Mm -hmm. you said conventions there were discussions about like the whiteness of conventions and i assume it was a pretty male hobby yeah we can confidently say that to my mind now that's not true but is that because i just mix in queer circles or are these now like quite queer quite racially diverse hobbies would you say uh i would say that the racial diversity is something that is still being worked on a lot okay um like i i definitely think it's still probably overall a hobby that could use with a little less whiteness um okay. particularly yeah, with yeah. like a lot of the like colonial uh undertones to a lot of D in particular but mm, kind of dungeon mm. delving rpg fantasy rpgs in particular kind of their core premise is sometimes a little colonialist it's almost like the fantasy genre was invented by a man obsessed with the british empire yeah <laughs> <laughs> Um, and you know, like a past golden age and things like that. Yeah, like there are yeah, some yeah, there yeah. are some inherent premises to a lot of high fantasy that uh, need interrogating and are being interrogated by a lot of really interesting people of color writers. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we could do with more of that. Yeah. Um, now that said, I do think 
the scene has gotten more welcoming to women and queer people mm-hmm. um, at maybe a slightly faster rate. I think your mileage is going to vary on that. Mm, yeah, I guess obviously that's going to depend a lot just on where you live and who you mix with. Yeah, and the kinds of communities you engage in, like, you know, is your game store welcoming or is it an environment that's very, like, toxically masculine? <laughs> um, yeah, I definitely know. remember walking into game stores as a, as a teen and it was very clearly just like, why are you in here? You're a woman, get out of here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the only game store I went into as a teen that I would say was welcoming to women was explicitly one where it was run by a husband and wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that helped a lot. But anyway, yeah, obviously uh, this change in target demographic brought with it the opportunity to bring in a more diverse audience in terms of gender and sexuality. And of course, the goth scene has always heavily overlapped with the queer scene. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, And that comes across in the writing and art direction. As early as page 10 of the first edition, a piece of fiction describes how vampires simply have appetites and goals that diverge from what your average Inquisition adherent thinks is normal. A piece of art on page 123 features two women grinding up against each other. I can't really point to specific examples of the fashion being queer-coded, because otherwise (laughs) we would be here for a month. Okay, yeah. Look, sometime we have to just, like, do an episode where we really delve into queer fashion. Yeah. (laughs) And then we can come back to this, maybe. Uh, Suffice it to say, there's a lot going on. Okay. There are, of course, some references to queerness that are of questionable taste. An Mm. edgy, like, kind of deliberately edgy game like this was always going to run the risk of doing this yeah yeah. um a paragraph on immunity to disease references how some vampires in haiti and the u.s have become active carriers for the hiv virus okay so i feel like there is like you know an interesting thing to explore here you could have a very interesting novel about vampires and bloodborne disease Mm. but i don't really trust that vampire the masquerade is going in depth enough to do this well Uh, having and i literally went through the whole first edition book just as i kind of part of my research for this episode and yeah no that this is literally like a one-liner yeah okay and it's and it's in a section that is kind of just about like oh hey so vampires are like immune to most diseases mm-hmm. um kind of like a fun little you know tidbit here's a fun little tidbit you can spread hiv but you're immune yeah it's okay that's not a fun tidbit a staple of the world of darkness games which world of darkness being kind of vampire the masquerade but also related games like and I'm blanking on the other names, but they have other games within that kind of stable that are all kind of modern set fantasy RPGs with different oh, okay. fantastical elements. Oh, they've got like a werewolf one, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they have werewolves yeah. and they have other kinds of games. But yeah, a staple of their depiction of queerness at this time was an effort at positive stereotyping. Most gay male characters, for example, were good-looking, both descriptively and mechanically. <laughs> mechanically good-looking. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, in a, in a game that is often about charm and, you mm. know glamour and manipulating people socially yeah a notable exception to this though is uh the character known as equalizer who was a physically repulsive but friendly npc in the 1993 nosferatu clan source book who murders a group of homophobes assaulting a pair of young gay men okay okay um you can see that's still like a positive stereotype even though they were like well we won't make this one like super pretty because the whole point of the Nosferatu clan in Vampire the Masquerade is that they're like physically repulsive. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he wasn't even like exceptional within his clan. Um, they just kind of made him a normal guy, he's gay, and he kills a bunch of homophobes. So, you know. Yeah, yeah. Look, I fully understand in the 90s the compulsion to just like go hard on the positive stereotyping. Like, you know, they were pushing back against some pretty horrific representation. Yeah, yeah. And some, and some pretty horrific real life you know, descriptions of yeah. queer people. Yeah. Um, so we mostly talked about sexuality here. Is there anything in Vampire the Masquerade about gender? 
Uh, so not so much in this sort of first edition of Vampire mm-hmm. Masquerade. I'll talk a little bit later about sort of more modern iterations of the game and where yeah. they've kind of taken it. But yeah, no, not not so much. They, they, there's kind of like things you could read into and imply. And, you know, there might be some stuff if I go, if I went into every single Vampire the Masquerade uh, expansion book. <laughs> but we would not ask you to do that. <laughs> uh, look, you know, if you guys want a whole podcast about <laughs> just about this, then... Uh... Do you mean a whole podcast is another episode or do you mean you go rogue and just make your own queer TTRPG podcast? No, that's exactly what I was okay. referring to, yes. <laughs> just saying. Uh, so later in the 90s, queer representation would become more varied. Um, an article I pulled extensively from in my research uh, titled Out of the Dungeons, Representations of Queer Sexuality in RPG Sourcebooks speaks of White Wolf as having proven its open-mindedness and earned some queer credentials, uh, allowing for depictions such as the cult Queens of Mercy in the Montreal by Night supplement published in 1997, who, <laughs> I can barely say this with a straight face, uh, kidnap straight people, dress them up, and force them to compete in capricious games, including being forced to act out the catfight between Joan Collins and Linda Evans from the TV show Dynasty. <laughs> okay i love tabletop rpgs they're so weird that's just so weirdly specific like why did you write that (laughs) like i feel like that's a weird idea you have when you're just kind of sitting around talking with your friends that's not something you write in a book and then public i feel like there's often a thing where tabletop rpg writers feel the need to include an example of something um and i actually think i actually find that really useful personally Mm. as a dm is you know hey i don't want to just say oh this group you know force people to compete in capricious games because people will interpret that in wildly different ways. Yeah. So here's yeah. a specific example of something that is clearly lighthearted and silly. Yeah. And, you know, maybe they then up the lethality of that a little bit, but uh, because, you know, they're vampires. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it has a tone to it that mm-hmm. I think is important mm-hmm. to set. Yeah, I guess you need the example to communicate the tone. Yeah, yeah, I think that's often a key thing for TTRPG writers, but does lead to silly examples like that. Yeah, yeah. So it is notable, however, uh, that the traditional fantasy genre remained stubbornly heterosexual, with only slight variation between publishers. Yeah, so even where queer references existed, they were incredibly subtle and often only confirmed by publishers in interviews or forum posts made well after publication. Uh, This included the 2001 sequel to the classic D&D adventure, The Temple of Elemental Evil, creatively titled Return to the Temple of Elemental Evil. (laughs) I have been thinking throughout this episode that a lot of these are names, the most boring things imaginable. Like, there was one before that was just like, Champions of Heroes and Legends, and I was like, you just pulled those words out of a hat and smooshed them together. (laughs) That means nothing. Superhero games really do have that problem. Yeah. Yeah. Said principal author Monty Cook, it was not the intention of the original creators of Rufus and Byrne, who were PCs, uh, together and played through the adventure so these are like real life player characters uh that played through the adventure of the temple of elemental evil uh that they were gay however it was absolutely my intention to portray them as such in return to the temple of elemental evil there's only the one bed chamber for them in the entire castle <laughs> there was only one bed there was only one bed uh without saying and they're gay which would be silly silly because it's really not an issue and because i didn't identify straight characters as such I get what he's saying, but also, have you heard of heteronormativity, mate? There's a reason you didn't identify the straight characters. Yeah, so that's an attitude common to a lot of media at the time, I would yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. Um, and while obviously a step forward from exclusion as the rule, um, and, you know, the code of ethics from early yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's a huge jump from the code of ethics. Uh, this is not ideal, obviously, for creating a welcoming space for queer players. 
Yeah, and I feel like if since Ample is like, oh, well, you know, there's only one bed in the castle that Rufus and Byrne sleep in. Like, a castle is a big building. How is it going to come up that there's even only one bed? Like, you may never notice that as a player of this game. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's an but, Easter egg. It's yeah. not, like, actual queer representation. It's very subtle. I'm going to skip forward a bit now and not kind of go in as much detail mm. because we've hit the 2000s, and as such, we're exiting the remit of this show. <laughs> that, I guess, is true. Can I ask a question before we enter into the 2000s? Sure. Are there any of these people who are writing about this stuff that we've talked about off the top of your head that you know are queer? Not off the top of my head, no. Okay. Because I was just thinking, like, from what that guy said, he doesn't sound like he himself is queer. He's put in some gays, but he doesn't seem like he's, he mm. himself is mm-hmm. queer. It's just a thing he's added in. So I was wondering if there are any examples of like, oh, yeah, this is a queer person trying to see themselves, but... Uh, we will actually get into that a little bit now. Okay, cool. Well, <laughs> good segue. So yeah, I want to hit on some of the progress that's been achieved in the industry over the past 20 years to kind of get us to what TTRPGs look like now. Mm. And this largely centers on three things. So the first is a simple increase in the quantity and prominence of queer representation. Yeah. So White Wolf continued to be a leader in this space with their 1999 superhero game, Aberrant, which not only featured the Queer Nova Alliance... <laughs> uh, but also that world's most powerful hero, uh, Divis Mal, a gay man. Oh, cool. Nice. Definitely well, noticing a, you know, overall trend towards a lot more gay men than any other types of queers, which shocks nobody. <laughs> yep. While Vampire the Masquerade has changed ownership, it has continued to increase its presentation of queer people in its fifth edition published in 2018. Um, and yeah, I'm pretty sure that edition explicitly deals with some of the, uh, like, transgender elements mm-hmm. of... Uh, I think there's like a particular clan that are like particularly transgender oh, yeah? um, in okay. sort of the way that their powers manifest. Mm-hmm. We actually have some friends who probably know a bit more about this than <laughs> I do. <laughs> yeah, I understand that there's a lot more kind of explicit connection between, uh, you know, vampire subcultures and mm-hmm. queer subcultures mm-hmm. sort of laid oh, out yeah. in the more in the more modern iterations okay. of the game. That's fun. So this is largely speaking where D&D itself has belatedly landed with the influence of gay lead designer for 5e, Jeremy Crawford, oh. an obvious one, um, as well as many queer designers whose work has increased the breadth of queer representation to feature more trans and ace characters in particular. Nice, nice, nice. Um, including things like the, you know, presentation of like, pronoun usage within books mm-hmm. and just being like this is the pronouns that this character uses nice that's good um, oh yeah i was uh as we mentioned before recently going through the long process of creating a D character mm-hmm. and i did notice that even if you look at the like most modern player's handbook it's still like there are two genders and for every race you can be it'll be like oh so you're a human these are the male human names and these are the female human names they haven't expanded that yet yeah i suspect that in the version of the player's handbook we get next year um which will be the first update to that book since Mm -hmm. 2014 that we will maybe see an update on that cool good i hope so at least i mean i would hope so too because i feel like at the moment it's like okay especially and i'm not that up on dnd so i can't remember the specifics there is one race where it's like this race doesn't really make much distinction between gender there aren't really that gendered names and yet when you actually go to the list of names it's still like male female it's like you told me that this wasn't a thing uh yeah 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 so it's like getting there but it's not there yet yeah in that way an important side note here is that as with many ways in which the culture of D has improved over the years a lot of this has been driven forward by the works of third-party publishers working with D material through the ogl license 
I literally cannot finish this episode without mentioning the wonderful work of people like Oliver Darkshire, who wrote Queer Coded, a book of transcendentally gay villains, <laughs> uh, amid a host of other non-D&D one-page RPGs, many of which are gay, all of which are hilarious. I could go through my entire follow list on Twitter and give you probably <laughs> dozens of queer designers, but some quick additional shout outs to Leon Barillaro, whose writing inspires me as a DM, uh, Orion D. Black, whose creative direction at Dimension 20 took that show to the next level in terms of its representation, and Kiana Shaw, co-curator of the Any Award-winning TTRPG Safety Toolkit, which helps hmm. uh, DMs and players play more safely at their tables. That's good. Nice. Yeah, so fangirling aside, um, <laughs> a second change has been publishers including queerness as part of the central law of their world or mm. premise of their game, rather than simply something present in individual NPCs or the background of stories. Mm. Um, for an early example of this, see the 2004 romantic fantasy game Blue Rose, which featured specific names for heterosexual and homosexual love and made a point of specifying that it was gay love that came first in the myths of the game world. Okay, cool. Yeah, I was thinking before when you started talking about Vampire the Masquerade and how they now have more kind of examples of queer subculture reflected in vampire subculture that we hadn't had that many examples yet of kind of queerness as culture it was a lot of kind of individual people of like oh there's this gay character or there's this trans character or something mm. without kind of being like okay so this is we're in a fantasy world what does gender and sexuality look like in that world that might yeah. be different and that was something you almost hit on it before when you were making references to the D player's handbook i believe what you were referring to was the uh description of elves uh, and maybe. their god corellan uh, who is depicted in many instances as being sort of gender neutral mm -hmm. and that kind of being reflected in elven culture and elven presentation of gender. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I think that's the kind of stuff that could be very interesting to think about because, you know, if you're an elf and you live for thousands of years, and I assume you're not, you know, in a society that's heavily focused on, like, childbirth and nuclear family because that's not how it would be if you were immortal. Like, your understanding of gender is going to be fundamentally different. Yeah, yeah. And we just don't get that in fantasy much. Yeah, um, for a more recent example, I'd point to Monster Hearts, a game about the perils of puberty hyper-realized through being and becoming literal monsters. Oh, I've heard of this. Um, its rulebook straight up tells players that your story will be more interesting and real if it includes queer content. Okay, good. <laughs> I mean, that's true. Yeah, yeah, and like, you know, this is a game where, yeah, you're playing vampires and werewolves and you're playing, you know, mind flayers and crazy demons and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have a bunch of friends who play this game. I haven't played it yet, but I'm really keen to at hmm. some point. So finally, we've seen the development and release of just straight up queer games. Um, an example of this is Rufus Roswell's Together We Write Private Cathedrals, a game where players explicitly take on the role of queer lovers exchanging correspondence, ending with the writing being destroyed. Like oh. you literally destroy the writing that you make as part of this game. Oh. Uh, a nod to historical realities that we've encountered many times on this podcast. That's a bit intense. Yeah, yeah. And these are obviously not like mainstream market games, yeah. right? Like this is something where, you know, this is a queer person's passion project. Yeah. And like, obviously, like, first of all, you don't have to destroy it. Like Rufus doesn't control you. Yeah. <laughs> but also like, it makes sense. Like it's a very good way of being like, I'm going to make you engage with queer history here. This is, you know, your dramatic love story that you're emotionally invested in chuck that out yeah yeah 
but so, it's yeah, full on. I, I had not heard of that before researching yeah. this episode, and I was like, oh, that's a brilliant concept. Yeah. So to wrap up, I just wanted to sort of briefly mention my own queer experiences with D&D, which have included my first time experimenting with feminine gender presentation, having a character change to use they, them pronouns partway through a campaign, uh, and engaging in a queer romance, which I think point to the ways role-playing with people you trust can help queer people who are exploring their identities, and which ultimately is the point of this episode. Hmm. Uh, to talk about the way queerness, in the same way it's an inherent part of the real world and real people, is an inherent part of fantasy worlds and fantasy people that we create together. And yeah, I'd love to hear any stories from you, our listeners, of your own queer experiences in tabletop RPGs, because I, you know, you're all, a lot of you are nerds. I know. <laughs> we know. We know what you're up to. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's kind of one thing that we haven't been able to touch on that much in this episode just because of like the nature of history is like how individual queer people from the 70s all the way through have been able to explore their own gender and sexuality through this role playing. Like we can look at the books and say, oh, the book provides this mechanic or the book provides this story, but so rarely is there going to be any record of what a random group of people actually sat down at a table and acted out in their home. Like, we just can't know, but there must be so many examples of queerness in RPGs from the start. Yeah, like, there were 100% DMs. I mean, we saw that, to go right back to the start of this episode, we saw that in uh, Dottilio's sort of view of D&D mm. versus uh, Buckman's view of just, like, there's just a lot of variation in how DMs work. And, you know, if you're a DM who had some queer friends, even if you were yourself not queer, you're probably just going to have some gay NPCs around yeah. in your village. And it'll just be like, oh, yeah, the blacksmith and his husband, you know? Yeah. Like, that's just going to seem fairly natural to you. And that's something that's going to have been in D&D mm. the whole time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. With that... The clouds darken, lightning <laughs> strikes, and from the shadows, a terrifying yet handsome figure emerges. <laughs> Count Strahd von Zarevich, vampire lord of Barovia, has arrived. Please roll for initiative. <laughs> <laughs> um, in all seriousness, we've been Queer as Fiction. I'm Jace. I'm Alice. And if you'd like to listen to more of our podcast, we're on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever good podcasts are found. We really appreciate reviews, particularly on Apple Podcasts, as they allow us to reach a wider audience. And we also just love hearing from you. If you want to follow us on social media, we are Queer as Fact on Twitter, I'm never calling it X, <laughs> Tumblr, and Facebook. Uh, we also have a Patreon where you can sign up for benefits such as our monthly newsletter and voting on future episode topics. Speaking of our Patreon, a special shout out to a few of our patrons. Uh, firstly, C. Moraz. Uh, secondly, Catherine Webb. And thirdly, Katie C. Thank you so much for pledging to our Patreon. We really appreciate it. Uh, finally, we have a merch store on Redbubble if you'd like to wear our logo on your shirt or drink out of a Queer as Fact mug. All of these links can be found on our website, queerasfact.com. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>